I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously, on Murder in Miami. Stanford was all too willing to dive into the new role of private investigator. And I was an utter failure at it. I said, Bob, I'm sorry. He said, oh, don't worry about it. And he pulled out a, a roll of bills, peeled off 500s, and he said, good work. <laughs> Why didn't the police or Intercept ever get to the bottom of who killed Clay Williams? It was a, a strange funeral anyway. Standing in the back end of the trailer were about four or five very big guys, obviously detectives. They were there to send a message. As far as the family's concerned, they never had any true answers as to who murdered Clay or why. I had understood from Clay that these were former intelligence people from from the federal government, whether CIA, Army intelligence, they were all associated, I think. Maybe Intercept had something to do with his death. I certainly didn't think so at the time, but the more we look into it, the more possible it seems. So what was the tie between the Central Intelligence Agency and Miami? It's still an open murder case in Miami-Dade, and they can't find the papers. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Following up 1980's record of 573 murders, 1981 would become Miami's deadliest year to date. Just seven months into 1981, Miami's homicide count was already at 296. By the end of the year, the number would reach 621. Clay Williams was just one of those murders. Perhaps that violence played into the strange and surreal time Bill Stanford soon found himself navigating before his path would cross in person with Lamar Chester. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Miami.
So it's 1982, and basically I'm hanging out at the Cardozo doing odd jobs for Intercept now and then. But after a while, the jobs <laughs> at Intercept are, are drying up. Bob tells me that he can't hire me full-time unless I have a private investigator's license, so I put in for the license. But they tell me it'll take several months to get it. So right about then, I actually made some money selling ads for telephone time and temperature for a guy named Uncle Dudley, who wore an ice cream suit and was really quite a character himself. Today is Friday, June 3rd. The current time, 11.45 p.m. And the temperature, 75 degrees. How did you connect with him? That was another Ruth connection from Alabama. I'm sure she'd met him back there. Was it enough to pay the rent? Yeah, I wasn't making that much money, but it was enough to get by on. I was really kind of drifting at that point. So that's why I, I decided how to go back to Washington, D.C. and see what was cooking back there. Were you second-guessing your decision to walk away from your career? It's always sort of in the back of my mind, I suppose. Phil, you downplay it, but you had some serious bylines before you moved to Miami. I mean, major articles in the New York Times, the Columbia Journalism Review on Defense and Intelligence Matters. That's an extremely impressive level of success as a journalist. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. What you've got to understand, I guess I've been trying to figure this out myself as we've gotten along with the podcast, is what effect that had on me and had on all this. Yeah, I, I wrote several pieces for the New York Times Magazine. One piece I did for them was a cover story about nuclear missile submarines. It was a big success by journalistic standards. All the major magazines in Europe uh, reprinted it, Reader's Digest. The New Yorker wrote a Talk of the Town article about it. So I sat back and, and waited for the reaction. I guess I expected the legislatures of the world to do something recognizing the essential insanity of the nuclear arms race. Once again, how dumb can you be? And shortly after that, the New York Times asked me to do another piece. This one on terrorism. And I knew just from my dealings with them so far that it would probably never even get printed, that they wouldn't want to hear what I had to say about the terror bombing of North Vietnam or the Irgun or the Stern Gang. So I punted. That's when I began my retreat. I took a job on that little political magazine we've talking about. I, I dropped out, went to Miami, wrote some crime stories for the Miami News and ended up working for Intercept. Is it safe to say that you were disillusioned? Yeah, except that I'd never really had that many illusions. So I, I guess it'd be more accurate to say I was burned out. Maybe, sitting around and hearing the former CIA and intelligence guys at Intercept somewhat reignited Stanford's inner investigative urges. Or maybe it just made him miss his former beat a bit. But Phil decided to make a trip back to Washington to reconnect with some former contacts, only to find some doors had closed during his time away. I'd only been away for a little over a year, I guess, but going back... It seemed like a, a very strange place, especially after the intensity of what I had felt in Miami. And one thing was apparent right away. Everyone knew I'd, I'd gotten off the, the ladder <laughs> to success. And I, I think whether they thought of that consciously or not, it entered, entered into all their considerations. Or maybe they just sensed, as I did, that Miami had changed me somewhat. In what way? I'd really gotten to see her. 
a glimpse into the way things really work before everything had been sort of abstract. Nuclear strategy, megatonnage, political programs, that sort of thing. And, and along the way, it had occurred to me that the, the people I considered the real criminals were the people who were running things in Washington and other places like that. A realization that led Stanford to reach out to a like-minded connection. So I got in touch with an old friend, Danny Sheehan, who had what I suppose most people would call a radical peace and justice organization called the Christic Institute in Washington. He was a a Harvard-trained lawyer. They were associated with the Jesuits, and they, they used the legal system to achieve their ends. The Christic Institute was a nonprofit public interest law firm founded in 1980 by Danny Sheehan, his wife Sarah Nelson, and a Jesuit priest named William Davis. The firm was a unique and revolutionary model for social reform, combining investigation, litigation, and education while mobilizing public support for worthy causes. They sought to wield the law as a weapon of progressive change against a number of daunting targets, like the KKK the American Nazi Party, as well as corrupt cops and federal agents. Bob Adams, the guy who's head of the detective agency, had been part of a military intelligence unit in Europe that provided logistical support for assassinations conducted by the United States. And (laughs) I thought it offered a way to prove that power did indeed, this is Mao's dictum, I believe, that power came from the barrel of a gun. I mean, (laughs) it probably sounded as stupid then and as naive as it does now, but that's how I was thinking. And in any case, Danny offered me a monthly stipend of $2,500 a month, which was more than I, I usually made as a freelance writer, for sure. And I put everything in the car again and went back to Miami. So... Now you're basically working as a private investigator, investigative journalist, investigating Intercept, a private investigation firm. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) You're lucky you didn't get yourself killed. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. Although, I don't know, maybe Bob would have sort of enjoyed the deviousness of it. But investigating Intercept would prove a bit inconvenient. The funny part is that when I got back, I went out to the office in Perrine, and it was closed. It was shut down. There there wasn't even a sign on the door anymore that said Intercept. I should have known something was up. When I was in D.C., I'd gotten a call from Ruth saying that a couple of federal agents had knocked on her door one evening and asked to talk to me. She said I'd moved out and gone to Miami Beach some time ago, and she didn't have a clue where I was. Then after they left, of course, she called me and told me what had happened. Did you wonder what they wanted? Well, I, I, I knew it had something to do with Intercept, but no. As far as I could see, I hadn't done anything illegal. So I just sort of pushed it out of my mind and forgot about it. And at this point, you also had a new girlfriend who was... Probably a wonderful distraction. (laughs) Probably more than a distraction, actually. Yeah, I I met Mickey one night. There's a party on the roof of the Cardoza, and she was there with a girlfriend. And struck me as a slightly shorter version of Melanie Griffith. (laughs) 
which I liked very much. Depending upon your age, you'd likely know actress Melanie Griffith from films like Working Girl or Bonfire of the Vanities, or as the daughter of Tippi Hendren, or the mother of Dakota Johnson, who Griffith had with her then-husband Don Johnson, the star of Miami Vice. For those unfamiliar with any of the aforementioned, let's just say Phil found Mickey very attractive. So there I was, after a hiatus in in Washington, D.C., back in Miami, or, or Miami Beach, to be precise, or even more precise, hanging out at the good old Cardozo, looking out at the ocean, getting... $2,500 a month from the Christic Institute doing virtually nothing. That doesn't sound like such a bad life. No kidding. And it was also an oddly unstructured, somewhat surreal period in Stanford's life. It was a great time. It was a strange time. There was this jazz combo that played at the Cardoza several nights a week. And I got to be friends with a saxophone player whose name I can't remember now, but I know he came from New Jersey, and he was down in Miami Beach hanging out with the rest of us 'er ne'er-do-wells, and and he'd kid me, seeing me spending all the time on the porch at the Cardozo without any apparent source of income, and he'd say, Stanford, what is your scam? What is your scam? And of course, I couldn't say I was getting paid for spying on a detective agency that for all practical purposes didn't exist anymore, but was a front for a major drug operation with CIA connections that may or may not exist. (laughs) So I'd just smile at him, and he'd say it again, what is your scam? And it was a big joke between us. Anyway, one day, he said he was out of towels. And so I said, well, I've got some extra ones in my room. So I gave him, what, three or four towels, and said, just give them back to me when you're done and didn't think again about it for another four or five weeks when it hit me that the son of a gun still had my towels, although it's probably worth mentioning that that we hadn't so much as mentioned (laughs) the damn towels since the day I gave them to him. The problem was I didn't have his phone number, so no way to call him, but I knew that he lived down the beach about four blocks and then a block back in a corner hotel there. So I hopped in my Volkswagen van, which is what I was driving then, and drove down Ocean Drive, turned right one block, and there he was, standing on the corner, almost at attention, elbows at his side, palms up, holding my towels in front of him, all laundered and neatly folded. And he said something like, I thought you might be needing these. And he handed them to me through the window. I took the towels and said, thank you very much, exchanged a few more words, and I drove off. So he just knew you were going to drive up? <laughs> that, that sounds like something out of a David Lynch movie. What, what, what do you, how do you explain that? Like mental telepathy? Whatever you call it. You know, I, I've seen it so many times. There are ways of communicating that we don't normally recognize or synchronicity and or meaningful coincidence is another way into that particular world. And I think everyone is probably capable of, of that sort of thing. Some are more susceptible than others, and people are more susceptible at different times of their lives. I think it has a lot to do with being in a position where you're not necessarily governed by the expectations that we've all 
had ingrained in us. This was sort of that time for me. I was, I was floating. I was going with the flow. So, I mean, I know you were dealing with the divorce and the change of profession and, and a, a new place to live, but do you think on some level you were in some sort of altered reality? No, I, I think it's perhaps uh, a more real reality. I think usually we allow ourselves to live in, in, in a more limited reality. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> a discussion for another time. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to Miami Beach in 1983. 
Phil would eventually move into Mickey's hipster apartment building, which would later be converted into a private mansion for designer Gianni Versace, the same location where Versace was murdered in 1997 by spree killer Andrew Cunanan. But in the early 1980s, it was far from glamorous, even though it was called the Amsterdam Palace. Here's Mickey. Really, it wasn't a palace, but you know what I mean. Well, just describe the building at that time and the neighborhood that it sat in. Okay, so it's a building that was a replicant of Christopher Columbus's house in Dominican Republic or something like that. It was built in 1922, so it was not included in the Art Deco movement or buildings that were being showcased for Art Deco. In fact, people in our building were always insulted. We were never part of the Art Deco movement because really the building wasn't Art Deco and it was gorgeous. And all along the building, Lauren, there were all these plaques of socialists like Emma Goldman and all all the apartments were inside, you know, looked inside into the main courtyard, which all terrazzo. Oh, that's so cool. It was. And I had only found it because my friend wanted to go and buy beads on Lincoln Road. And then we drove up Ocean Drive and I had her stop the car because I just couldn't believe how beautiful this building was. And it had this beautiful bronze statue outside of a crouching woman. And I thought, oh, my God, there's a rent sign. And I just went in, met the woman who was like 80 something was managing it. And I rented the room. Would you say that the building was, as the neighborhood, a bit in decline at the time? Oh, absolutely. How did I get to live there? I mean, when I would invite people that I met in Miami to come over to the Amsterdam Palace, they were like, oh, who could live there? Not the Amsterdam Palace necessarily, but who would live on South Beach? Wow, things have changed. Yeah, At the time, Amsterdam Palace and Miami Beach weren't exactly prime real estate or a prized destination location. And when I moved there, they had the whole beach filled with the Marialitos. Mm -hmm. You could smell the chicken barbecuing for miles because they had the whole beach, like from 15th to 5th. Wow. That area was really rife with a lot of things happening, like not great things. I think my car was broken into a bunch of times. You had to be really careful where you were walking. And I worked a couple of jobs. So when I came home at night, it was really kind of scary to go into the building because now it's all protected, but then it was completely open. Anybody could come up to my louvered door <laughs> apartment. Miami at that time was known for drug-related crimes, especially homicides. How prevalent and present was that on a daily basis? Was that always simmering under the surface? Yeah, I would say that there was always something going on. Like before I moved into the Amsterdam Palace, I lived with my sister in this other house. Mickey and her sister rented rooms in a house from a family who had teenage kids. One day, their father basically disappeared. They were at the end of high school, and their father flew drugs to Columbia, and they never heard from the father again. Somebody knew somebody that was drug-related. That's so interesting, because there's this quote I read uh, on Miami, that you could choose not to do drugs. You could choose not to associate with people who did drugs or sold drugs. But at the end of the day, living in Miami at that time, you could not escape the reality of drugs. Right. 
I would agree with that, 100%. At the time Mickey was dating Phil, she was busy going to school and working two jobs, one as a waitress. But the drug culture still seeped in. I remember I was working at Tony Roma's, and I had a table that was like three couples. And they ordered the most expensive double Johnny Walker Blacks, and then they wouldn't drink it. And then they ordered all the food, like all the things that you could order. They ordered everything, and they didn't eat it. And then I remember they threw all these $100 bills on the table. And I'm thinking, well, that's a first for me. You know, like a $1,500 tip after they paid for the drinks and food that they didn't eat. They were too coked up. (laughs) Yeah. That wasn't the set or scene you'd associate with the Amsterdam Palace, though. Here's Phil. Miami Beach was still in its tumble-down stage, and so the the owners, uh, the Amsterdam Palace, had divided the entire place into studios and apartments. Fortuitously, or maybe just in keeping with his experiences at the time, Bill had secured the studio next to Mickey's. As the relationship progressed, so did their living spaces. (laughs) After a few weeks, we took down the door between our studios and had one big apartment. We had a pretty fabulous place. It was on the water. And I remember being transfixed from time to time by the beauty of the place, looking out of the apartment through the curved window of the masonry wall. So everything's framed in white, you see, looking out at the bright blue sky, the blue-green sea lit with sun, the heavy green of a palm frond against them, and thinking, the world is such a beautiful place, and we have done nothing to deserve it. And that picturesque location would soon attract the attention of a then-unknown television show about to begin filming in Miami. I think they started scouting probably 83, 84, because they wanted to see my place and the guy in the front's place. And I said, oh, what are you scouting for? And he goes, oh, Miami Vice. And I go, what's it going to be about? He said, cocaine. I said, do we really need that? (laughs) Glorizing cocaine. (laughs) I remember one morning waking up, looking out the door that opened onto the courtyard, And there were these two guys coming out of two different doors, one wearing a lavender sport coat, another wearing a salmon-colored sport coat, dropping down into the classic two hands (laughs) on a pistol pose that TV detectives anyway always do. But Phil's own private investigator-slash-detective adventures were proving a lot less glam or busy now that Intercept had shuttered its doors. So finally, I I tracked down Bob, and we get together. I don't think it was at the Cardozo, Perrine Pub, uh, probably was. And Bob tells me, turns out that Lamar has been under federal investigation for some time now, something called Operation Lone Star, and it's a very big deal. Grand juries in Houston, Atlanta, Miami. Which is likely why the feds were looking for you in the first place. Yeah, so the smart thing Bob figures is to Adopt a low profile. He's doing business from home now. He's working as a bodyguard, guarding money shipments, that sort of thing. So where does that leave you in terms of your fledgling private investigator career? So there really isn't much for me to do. Not at Intercept anyway. And it turns out, not in my new 
career as a spy for the Christic Institute either, because it turns out Bob doesn't really know much more about the assassination business than he's already told me. He was in an Army security agency unit in Frankfurt, Germany, sort of enlisted man-level jobs, providing logistical support. But he does remember, (laughs) is one of these things he says with a giggle, that every five years, some shavetail lieutenant who probably has no idea what he's talking about or why, shows up at his door in Miami and reminds him he's still bound by his strict oath of security. And he found that amusing? Bob was always amused by how foolish or corrupt the world always proved itself to be. And as far as the case against Lamar, he says that's really nothing to worry about either. Oh, sure, there's an indictment coming down, but Lamar's got everything under control. He's got the best lawyers in the world working for him. He's already got a change of venue to northern Georgia, where he's got everyone bought off. And everybody at Intercept, with their intelligence connections, has already made their deals and been dropped from the indictment. Well... He's certainly right about the fact that there were significant indictments involved. Tilton Lamar Chester, 45, a former Eastern Airlines pilot, is one of 12 people charged in a major federal investigation dubbed Operation Lone Star. A 36-count indictment accuses Tilton Lamar Chester Jr. of... Chester led a large smuggling organization. In the fall of 1983, those indictments were national news. A Georgia drug runner who federal authorities say engineered a drug smuggling and money laundering scheme. Government agents received information that international drug smuggler Lamar Chester. Charging that Chester led a large smuggling organization. From the island he controlled in the Bahamas to his native Georgia and perhaps to a dozen other states. For some background, the Bahamas are comprised of an extensive chain of 700 islands and 2,400 low banks or reefs of coral, rock, or sand called keys, spanning an area roughly the size of California, extending from Florida's coast on the northwest almost to Haiti on the southeast. The area has a long and notorious history of illicit activity. Pirates use the Bahamas as their preferred port because of its plentiful small islands, shallow waters, and coves, which served as ideal hiding places. The shallow waters were also perfect for the smaller, faster boats favored by pirates, but too shallow for the larger man-of-war ships often in their pursuit. From 1917 to 1933, when Prohibition became the law of the land in America, Bahamas played an important part, becoming an ideal hub for alcohol smuggling, offering numerous secretive places where alcohol could be stored en route to America. All of the above made the Bahamas an obvious destination location for drug smugglers looking to carve out their share of profiting off of America's insatiable and ever-evolving appetite for illegal intoxicants. Okay, back to Chester's indictment. I'm reading from the October 4th, 1983 issue of the New York Times under the headline, Group in Bahamas Charged in Big Narcotic Conspiracy. Federal prosecutors unsealed a 36-count indictment today charging that a northeastern Georgia man led a large smuggling organization that shipped marijuana and cocaine into the United States from a base in the Bahamas. The indictment charged Tilton Lamar Chester, Jr., 45 years old, of Cleveland, Georgia, 
and 11 others with drug offenses and conducting a criminal enterprise in a pattern of racketeering. It asserted that the group ran an organization that purchased the Darby Islands, a small group in the Bahamas, as a base through which to move drugs from Jamaica and Colombia into the United States. Other defendants named in the article are Chester's attorney Lance Eisenberg and another smuggler you'll hear much more about going forward, Ronald Elliott. And just a few days after the indictment is made public, Lamar is back in the news again. The indictment said Chester had houses, an aircraft hangar, and an airstrip built on the islands for use in the drug operation. And Lamar is actually interviewed on an Atlanta television station saying, this is a paraphrase, yes, I did it. I flew 200 loads into the country, but I did it with the okay of the CIA and the DEA. And if the federal government is foolish enough to put me on trial for this, I'm going to tell everything I know about what the government's been up to, and I have enough evidence to shake the U.S. government to its core. And so, what did Bob think of all this? Bob couldn't be enjoying it anymore. Lamar's so sure he's going to win, which means they'll drop the case before it even goes to trial, that he's got his lawyers spending half their time just trying to get his pilot's license back. When they indicted him, they took away his pilot's license just to punish him, Bob says. Lamar loves to fly, and he's got this little Piper Cub, in addition to the planes he uses for the smuggling business, that he likes to fly for fun over his ranch up in northern Georgia. Well, what did you make of all this? What did you think of Chester's gray male defense? For anyone not familiar with the term... Gray mail, like blackmail, implies the threat of revealing compromising or damaging information in exchange for benefit, except gray mail specifically threatens the revelation of state secrets in order to manipulate legal proceedings. Well, to tell the truth, I really didn't know. I was aware, of course, that in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, the United States, the CIA had been involved in using drugs to finance off-the-books wars in Asia. And I, I knew, of course, that the guys in Intercept had intelligence connections. One had even been overt station chief of the Miami station during the Bay of Pigs time. But that didn't prove anything. Maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't. For all I know, Lamar might just be making it up. And at this point, you hadn't yet met Lamar in person, right? No, I I still hadn't met Lamar. But the next thing I know, I get this call from Bob saying that Lamar wants to meet me at the mutiny, which, of course, is the hangout for all the premier drug smugglers in Miami. So why in the world would he want to meet you at that point and at that place, given that he's already been indicted? That's what I'm wondering, too. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. 
For all the times you begged for soda. Get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner. Get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Located on the bay in Coconut Grove and first opened in 1969, the Mutiny Hotel was known for its glitzy debauchery and decadence. At one point in the 1970s, the Mutiny earned the distinction of selling more Dom Perignon champagne than any other venue in America. Much of it served in hot tubs. The venue had 130 rooms, including lavishly decorated fantasy-themed suites with names like the Egyptian Suite, Gypsy Caravan, the Bordello, Hot Fudge, and Outer Space. Guests are said to have included the likes of Cher, Jacqueline Onassis, Led Zeppelin, George Bush, and Fleetwood Mac. By the 80s, it had infamously morphed into a cocaine-fueled membership-based Miami hotspot where notorious drug traffickers partied alongside celebrities, politicians, and the drug and law enforcement agents who were there under the guise of monitoring the action. It also had a rapidly growing reputation as the destination location for cocaine. Its infamous nightclub served as the inspiration for the Babylon Club in the movie Scarface. Oliver Stone, Al Pacino, and the rest of the cast and crew even checked into the mutiny during the filming for research purposes. 
back to Phil. So I go to the mutiny with Bob. It must be about two or three on a weekday afternoon. So the place isn't really bustling yet. Lamar isn't there yet either, or else he has other business to attend to. So Bob and I start drinking and drinking. And the mutiny was a new luxury hotel in Coconut Grove. There were tables in the main bar room with telephones on each one, sort of old style. This is pre-cell phone days. And it's where all the drug dealers hung out and made deals, and very conspicuous deals. And of course, all the DEA agents had memberships too, so they could sit there and watch the drug dealers. <laughs> and outside, there were several outdoor bars placed around the, the grounds of the hotel, with big umbrellas above them, pretty Cuban girls serving drinks. Bob and I must have stopped at all of them while we were waiting for Lamar. So you guys must have been pretty tipsy by the time Chester walked in. Well, finally, Lamar shows up. We're waiting in his room, and he breezes in. And yeah, because always we've had to drink. My recollection is a little bit hazy at some points, but I do remember thinking he looked a little bit slighter than I had expected from all of Bob's heroic descriptions of him. And I was also struck by what I remember as sort of a lounge lizard mustache. But that, that was something that I, I think was probably in style back in the, the 70s. What do you mean by the lounge lizard mustache? That he had what struck me as sort of a, a drugstore cowboy mustache. I might expect to see in a show in Las Vegas or something like that. Do you remember what he was wearing? Nothing flashy. Shirt, jeans, loafers. So we start talking. Nothing special at first. How you doing? What do you think of the mutiny? That sort of thing. Nothing about the indictment or his threat to spill the beans on the CIA and shake the government to its core. When out of the blue, Lamar says, with that big old door-to-door salesman smile of his, I bet you're wondering why I invited you down here, right? And I must have mumbled something. I don't remember exactly what. I'd asked Bob, and Bob said, Lamar will explain it when we get there. And Lamar says, well, I just want you to know that I appreciate what you're doing here, but I sure as hell wish you and your boys back in Washington would get a move on it. Out of the blue, just like that. And I say, what? I certainly don't know what to make of it. And he says, oh, come on now. You're with the CIA, right? Wait, he thought you were with the CIA? Why? (laughs) I had no idea at the time. I, I didn't even believe it was real. But then nothing I'd been doing was quite real either. The work I did for The Intercept wasn't all of it quite real. And so why would this be any less unreal, I suppose? And I say, Lamar, I'm I'm not with the CIA. At which point he nudges my shoulder with his elbow. And in a friendly way, I mean, he's smiling. He says, good boy, that's just what you would say. And it hasn't hit me yet, but I'm in a very odd situation. The more I deny it, the more he believes I'm with the CIA. There's no way I can convince him otherwise. So how did that meeting end? Oh, maybe I say a couple more times I'm not with the CIA. I don't remember that. Or maybe it's since he's, as far as he's concerned, my denial has already proved that I am with the CIA. We have uh, just some more small talk, and then Bob and I stumble off, drunker than skunks. It's starting to get dark now, and on our way back to Miami Beach, I ask Bob if Lamar is kidding. 
it still hasn't sunk in <laughs> that any of this is real. Does he really believe I'm with the CIA? And very solemnly, Bob says, yes, he does. What about Bob? Did he think you were with the CIA too? <laughs> That's what's even more incredible, but it won't dawn on me till sometime later, is that Bob, the guy who hired me in the first place, for goodness sake, thinks so too. So, as Stanford staggered home, his head was spinning, and not just because of the alcohol, but his night was far from over, and a hangover wouldn't be the only thing he'd regret the next morning. On the next Murder Miami, looking into Clay's death leads further into the mystery of dashing pilot Lamar Chester and to his inner circle, including a legendary former cocaine smuggler. Aguilar just, did you quit loving me? Happy Miles here, give me a call. Mr. Miles was a close business associate and friend of Intercept's biggest client, Lamar Chester. He was flying guns then to Nicaragua. And did he tell you who he was running the guns for? I would imagine the CIA was running that show. Like Icarus, all these guys would eventually fly a bit too close to the sun. They all got burned. Except Happy. Except Happy. Murder Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco, Taylor Shacoin, and Phil Stanford. Written by Phil Stanford and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Audio editing and sound design by Nicholas Harder, Evan Tyre, and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Evan Tyre, Phil Mayer, John Murchison, and Taylor Shacoin. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.